0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. As we've been looking through the book of Revelation, we've been given these windows into heaven to see what heaven is like, and not heaven in a future sense, but heaven right now. And one of the things that's become obvious over and over and over again through the entirety of this book, even as we're so early into it, is that heaven is a noisy place. From the very first picture that we get of heaven, we see this picture around the throne of God where there's flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder and constant noise generated from the presence of God alone. But on top of that, all around the throne of God are these heavenly beings, these living creatures and elders and angels. And day and night, over and over and over again, they're singing praises to God and speaking their heart of his power and majesty and glory and honor and praise that's due to him and him alone. But we also saw there's another kind of sound around the throne of God. The voices of martyrs, the voices of those who have given their life for the cause of Christ, who are crying out in agony and sorrow and brokenness, asking God to give vengeance and to give justice for what was done to them. But we also see the echoes of these imageries of God's judgment and the proclamations of what's going on and what's going to continue happening throughout the history of the world and the church until Christ comes again to make all things right and all things new. And so it's a noisy place there in the presence of God. And so imagine how shocking it would be if all of a sudden, all the noise, all of the excitement, all the movement, all of the volume in heaven stopped like some sort of cosmic version of when you're in a really noisy room and all of a sudden everyone stops talking and you just find yourself saying out loud, and that's why I can never eat salmon again. (laughs) And it's awkward and it's, it's unsettling and it's disturbing. But that's what we see at the beginning of Revelation chapter eight. As Jesus continues what he started a few chapters earlier, And if you haven't been here with us or if you missed a couple Sundays, first you can always catch up on the website or through anywhere that you listen to podcasts because so much of this builds on top of itself week to week to week. But we looked at this heavenly picture of Jesus, the lamb who was slain and rose again, walking up to the throne of God and taking from his hand a scroll. It represents the fullness of God's plan, everything that God is gonna do to bring everything to rights, to put his world back together. Jesus takes that scroll from him but it's wrapped up really tight with seven different seals. And he starts breaking those seals. And we see the things going on in our world, the things that are happening in the world that have been happening since its foundation, since sin entered God's good creation, but also especially throughout the history and the life of the church, as Jesus breaks those seals, we see more of those things revealed and put on display. And then he breaks that seventh seal And all of heaven goes silent. In fact, John says there's silence for about half an hour as the whole of heaven is in awe of the full revelation of what God is doing to redeem his world and to save his people. But then after about half an hour, that silence is broken. And what breaks that silence is incredible and and awesome and overwhelming. And so we see here, when we look at this passage that's going to be, as the title suggests, talking about the coming judgment of God, all of this begins as a response to the prayers of God's people. As this angel offers up the prayers of God's people as, as incense to God, he receives those prayers and it moves him to begin this work of judgment in the world. And so even though what we're gonna talk about today is, is really heavy and some of these passages in Revelation get that way and we're gonna hit a few of them over the next several weeks. But even though this passage is incredibly heavy in its nature, we also have this picture of hope because if you're here and you've ever had the thought that maybe God doesn't listen, that maybe God doesn't care about what you have to say, that God doesn't care about your prayers or your hurts or your needs or your brokenness. Here we see those prayers of God's people that have been offered up as long as people have been praying, they're offered to God as a pleasing offering and it moves the heart of God and ushers in the beginning of what will eventually be restoration and salvation. But that gives way to an overwhelming and kind of horrifying scene that takes place over the next part of chapter 8 and into chapter 9. And so again, this is one of these heavy passages that we've, we're, we've got to get through, because it's, it's this stuff, it's this judgment that leads to the beauty of the finality of salvation that comes in the later chapters of Revelation, but it's a heavy one. And so let's just dive in and see what God's word says. We're going to read from chapter eight, verse six, all the way through chapter nine. So buckle up and hang on tight and let's move through God's word. It says, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night." Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like a smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them and their torment was like the torment of scorpions when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads, what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They have breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the angel who had the trumpet release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was ten, twice 10,000, 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions. Heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping of demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot hear or speak. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Whew. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, Father God, you know this is a heavy passage because you wrote it. God, you know that this is a difficult passage because there's so many signs and pictures and symbols in here that are hard to decipher, understand. And so God, I just pray first and foremost that you help us to understand what we can and to be comfortable with what we can't. God, I pray as we talk about a subject matter as heavy as, as a proclamation of judgment, Help us to also rest in the hope that we have that Christ is our firm foundation, our hope in tribulation and our salvation. But God, also help us to feel a little challenged by this as well. To recognize what's to come, but also to realize what we need to be doing now of doing the work of your ambassadors in this world, of loving our neighbors, ourselves, of caring for those in need, of proclaiming the gospel everywhere that we go. But God, also help us to recognize part of your character and nature this morning, that you won't allow sin to continue forever and that you have a plan to make right the things that are wrong, to bring justice where it's needed, to bring judgment where it's needed, and help us to worship you in light of that as well. As difficult as that often may be, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So let's talk about just the the overall imagery here for starters. We have this picture of trumpets. So what what does that mean? What are we talking about here? What are we looking at? Now, when I was in sixth grade, I decided I wanted to join the band Because at Loganville Middle School every year, I don't know if they still do this, but every year at Loganville Middle School, the band got to go to Disney World and I thought, I'd like to do that. Which in hindsight, I feel like all they did was practice and then march in a parade, which doesn't sound super like joyful, and joyful, I'm really tired. It doesn't sound like something I'd be really interested in, but I really wanted to try it anyway. And so in my mind, I I had a couple options. I thought, maybe I'll do some percussion. I was taking some drum lessons at the time. I thought, maybe I'll do some percussion. Or also, I liked the way the saxophone looked, so I thought, maybe I'll play the saxophone. But as it turned out, my uncle had an old trumpet. And so my parents said, hey, your uncle has an old trumpet. And so if you wanna do this thing, because clearly you just wanna go to Disney World anyway, you're gonna play this old trumpet and we're not gonna spend a lot of money buying you an instrument. So there I was with my trumpet. And that trumpet is a source of deep trauma for me. I had a friend, and that should be in quotations at this point, who would sit beside me on the bus and I would stand my little trumpet case up and he would just slam my head into it the entire way to school. (laughs) Again, like looking back, friend is not an appropriate term there. But also, I don't understand how anyone ever gets good at trumpet. I had a friend in college who was a very, very gifted trumpet player, and every single day I thought, how? Not because even that it's particularly difficult. I don't know if it's difficult. I tried for three weeks and then literally faked my way through everything else we did except one pop quiz where the conductor came to us one by one and told us to play notes. And that was super exciting because he was like, play a C. And I was like, C. Like there's nothing there. I had no idea how to play it at all because it's awful when you're bad at it. Because any instrument, you're not ever going to be good when you first start, and you're going to make mistakes, and it's going to sound cluttery and all this kind of stuff. But when you play guitar and you make a mistake, it's kind of quiet. When you play piano and you make a mistake, it's kind of quiet. When you play trumpet and you make a mistake, it's like broadcasting to your entire neighborhood, this kid is so bad. And so after just being loudly bad for about three weeks, I was like, I'm good. I don't need to go to Disney World. I'm never playing trumpet again. And so it makes sense that trumpets have been used throughout history for a very specific thing. They've been used on the battlefield to communicate across large spaces where people are screaming and battling. The trumpets were used because they were so loud that they could communicate across such chaos. They were used as alarms and warnings and kingdoms and castles when enemies were approaching or something wasn't right, so that all who were around the earshot of this trumpet, which again, very long spread, could hear that something isn't right. And so this imagery is not by accident here, as John sees these angels armed with trumpets, And here we have another set of seven, and we've talked about how important numbers are, and they mean things all throughout the book of Revelation, especially helping us understand as best we can what's going on. And so we saw seven seals around the scroll of God that represent the things that are going on, the tribulation and the hardship in our world right now, as people seek after these counterfeit kingdoms of the world instead of trusting in Christ and the chaos and calamity that ensues because of that. In a few weeks, we're going to look at these bowls of judgment also coming in the number seven, this picture of God's final judgment in the world. And now we get these seven trumpets. And there is a lot of room for interpretation here because the imagery is so strong. But when we look at the flow of the entire book of Revelation, it seems that these trumpets are warnings of something to come, proclamations of a thing that will happen. Now what that looks like is, is tough. You just heard it. We just read it together. This is, a, this is a weird passage. And there is imagery in here that is really difficult and hard to capture. And so we're gonna do the best we can not to pick out every single thing and say, this is this and this is this, because I don't think that's how these passages are meant to be read here while we're reading them as they're cloaked in all of this symbolism. But we're gonna to try to do the best we can to figure out the meaning of these trumpets to figure out what they mean and how we understand them and what they teach us about who God is and about his plan for the world. And so with so much uncertainty around this passage, I think the best thing to do is to recognize that each set of these trumpets help us to understand a part of the character and the nature of God, but also the holistic and total nature of God's coming judgment when he does judge the world and all of the things in it. And so let's just look at what we see here. First and foremost, these judgments have a natural impact. These judgments have an impact on the natural world and on creation itself. We've talked a lot about how important it is to interpret scripture with scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. We can try to come to Revelation armed with current events. We can come to Revelation armed with the news and try to identify what all these symbols could mean based on the things going around us now. But the best way to interpret, especially the book of Revelation, is to look throughout the rest of scripture. And what can we see happening? And what parallels is John trying to draw? And while we have these seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls in the book of Revelation, maybe it'd be good to look for another set of seven somewhere else throughout scripture. And in fact, we don't have to go very far because in Genesis chapter one, we see the first things broken down in a group of seven when we see the creation narrative and the seven days of God creating the heavens and the earth. And if you were here a few months ago, we went through Genesis chapter one through 11, talking about the nature of God and the character of God that's put on display in those passages. And we saw that in Genesis chapter one, we see this beautiful poetic description of God's creative power. That not only did he create the world, but he did so in such a beautiful and awesome way. Forming the world out of chaos into order and structure and form. But not only forming the world, but filling it and giving such vibrancy and such life with this passionate artist's heart. And we looked at the fact that creation itself is an act of God's grace and love, that he didn't need to create us, that he didn't have to create us, that he didn't gain anything by creating us other than the fact that he desired us and that he desired this world. And so if God's creation is an act of grace, When we look at an act of judgment, it makes sense that the response would be uncreation, undoing the thing that he had already done. And this isn't the only time we see this take place in scripture. The whole flood narrative in Genesis chapter six is an act of uncreation. It's God taking a world that was once covered in waters that he draws the land and and all these things out of the waters, returning the world back to chaos for the purpose of judgment and uncreation and starting over. But why? Why does this have to be a part of God's judgment? Why worry about the natural world in this sense? Well, think about Genesis chapter three. When we see this story describing sin entering God's good garden and this representation of sin entering God's world. The curse that comes down from that affects humanity for sure. But also we see a little side note in there that God looks at at the people in the garden. He says, cursed is the ground because of what you've done. And in Romans, Paul echoes that sentiment, reminding us of the fallen nature, not just of humanity, but also of creation itself. In Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Paul says that that the creation itself, that the world itself was impacted because of the sin of humanity. When Genesis chapter one, we see that everything that God creates, he looks at it and he sees that it's good, but then we bring sin into the picture and it taints not only ourselves and our persons and us as as a humanity, but also the ground on which we walk. And so God has to purify not only his people, but also his world. My wife is really good at crocheting stuff, like really good at crocheting things. And it's just impressive to watch in general. She works very, very quickly and she has this tiny little stick and it's a hook and she makes yarn that's nothing turn into something. And it's really amazing to watch. But there's this thing she does sometimes. And when she does it, because of my personality, because of the, the way that I see things and do things, when she does it, it literally makes my skin crawl and then the muscles in between my shoulder blades get really tense. So she's sitting on the couch, right? Working on, we'll say a baby blanket because those usually take her a couple few hours. So she's just cranking away on this baby blanket. She works 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, gets about two hours. And then she just makes a subtle noise. <sighs> And then she starts doing this horrifying thing where she grabs the end of the yarn and she starts pulling and she just starts undoing this blanket. She undoes 15 minutes of work, 30 minutes of work. 45 minutes of work, an hour's worth of work to go back and find the one place where she made a mistake because it was taking the entire thing and moving it off rhythm. And so she undoes all of that work so that she can go back and just do it again. In which case, if it were me, (laughs) I would throw it away and never crochet again because that would be the end of it. But for her to be able to make this blanket that's perfect to the specifications that she wants it to be, she has to go back and take out the imperfection or it'll never be right. And that's what God is doing here in these passages of scripture. For something imperfect to be made perfect, uncreation has to occur. And when we look at verses six through 13, we see this chaotic picture with all this symbolism, but all of it is natural in its essence trees being burned up, the earth being burned up, sea turning into blood, rivers and streams drying up and becoming poisonous. We see even the sun and the moon and the stars, all of these things affected by God's judgment. And even though this isn't a one-to-one parallel between Genesis chapter one, we see everything that God does. As God creates land and sea, as God fills up the land and the sea, as God parts water from waters, all of these elements of the world, and even the sun, moon, and stars that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, all are affected by this picture of God's judgment. Every aspect that was formed and filled by God is profoundly impacted and undone. And so just in case we ever forget that sin is a really big deal, We get to look here and see what it's gonna take to get rid of it in God's creation. This is God literally digging up the root of sin in his creation and taking it out. One of the early church fathers described sin as pollution that was poured into a stream. And every generation of humans, we just pour more pollution into the stream. And for that to ever be pure again, it takes radical recreation. And so this coming judgment, whatever it looks like in all of its details and specifics is clearly something that has a natural impact on the world around us. But not only that, these judgments have a spiritual impact. These judgments are spiritual in their nature. When you get to chapter nine, verse one, the perspective changes. So there's all of this happening to the natural world, all this happening to the earth itself and the heavens around the earth. And then in chapter nine, he says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So we clearly have some imagery going on here. And we've seen this this personification, the anthropomorphism all throughout the book of Revelation where Jesus is described as the lamb who was slain and the lion of Judah. We've seen these kind of images already. And so here we get this picture of this star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And we find out really quickly that it's not literally meaning a star falling from heaven to earth because the star seems to be a boy. It says the star fell from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And so not only do we have a, a point of view change from earth to the heavens, but also we seemingly have a point of view change here from the material natural world to the spiritual. And then we go into this next section and it gets, it gets wild through the rest of this chapter. We see this, this angel, we see this star open up this bottomless pit, whatever that looks like, and out of it comes an actual horror show. And the, this is one of those passages where interpretation can get unique. <laughs> I've heard a couple people actually, when they look at this passage, they're saying, oh, well, clearly John is talking about the modern world here, and he's describing helicopters, war helicopters, to the best of his ability, because you know, if you look at a helicopter and you look through the window, then you can see the face of the pilot, and so that's how these 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 locusts, that's how they have the face of a person, and then the the suit of iron and all this stuff, and so they're trying to draw this very distinct characteristic because there's nothing else in the natural world that looks like this. And if it did, oh man, it would be horrifying. And so we like to try to find the simplest explanation that we can, but if we're trying to interpret this passage to, for lack of a better term, literalistically, then we've gotta do some really weird guessing work. But it's more likely that this is a picture of spiritual judgment, that these horrific images all throughout chapter nine, leading up to about verse 13 or so are just pictures and portrayals personifications of demonic spiritual activity in the world so let's make a case for that real quick because that's a that's a thing and this is this is a very interpretive passage so let's talk about why that might be the case first off right off the bat in verse one we get something that looks like a legend or a key to interpreting the rest of this section we have a star that's not a star and this is clearly some sort of spiritual being doing something that he's been given authority to do, opening something described only as a bottomless pit. And so clearly there is a spiritual tone to this entire chapter here. But not only that, if we look at verse four, there's a little hint here that this isn't something natural or material, but something spiritual. It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so this thing here isn't impacting the material or the physical world, but also there's protection for God's people from this. And so remember last week, as we looked at, at the end of chapter seven, we saw this idea that when God was saving his people, the term that, that John uses there is that they were being sealed on their foreheads. And we talked about this as a way of God marking his people, conforming our minds, conforming our hearts, making us more in his image and sealing us for himself. And so when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are sealed and protected by God, not just for eternity, but also from some of this spiritual chaos that takes place in chapter nine. But even beyond that, we can look at this and say, well, if this is about, if this is about bad stuff, bad things, spirituality, if this is about evil spirit, if this is about demonic activity, then how could God have any involvement in this? Because so often we look at the world, spiritually speaking, like a yin-yang, that there is an equal but opposite good and evil side to this coin. And then we think that there's no crossover there. And we think that it's something that is completely separate, but almost equal, but then one day God is gonna win in the end. But this isn't the first time that we've seen God use things that are directly counter to who he is and things that are a result of rebellion and awfulness to accomplish his purpose. In Judges chapter nine, verse 22 and 23, says Abimelech, who was the king at the time, he ruled over Israel for three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubabel might come. But that's not it. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 19, we see this happen again in the life of Saul. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillfully playing in the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And that same language comes up again inside the same book in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10 and 11 says, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul that he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. We see it again in the book of Job as the whole council of God comes together and, and Satan reports too. And God allows Satan to, to, to bring all kinds of chaos in the life of Job. And so we see here that even though these, these evil things in the world, this demonic activity, this power of hell is completely contrary and opposite of God and even making war against God, it's not beyond the realm of his control or authority. And while one day he'll put these things to death once and for all, he also uses them and allows the powers of hell that we unleash, the spiritual sickness that we spread, speaking broadly as humanity, to bring spiritual destruction and torment as judgment comes on the world. So many times we focus, especially in the book of Revelation, on trying to figure out the physical stuff that's mentioned. But this spiritual violence before Christ's return, again, helps us see how profoundly devastating sin is and the kind of impact that it has on our world, not just physically, but also spiritually. But then finally, we see that these judgments have a human impact. Then it gets down to us. And in verse 13, it says, the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, this passage just does not relent in the heavy The Euphrates River had a really important role in the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in the life of God's people in Israel. The Euphrates River separated the people of Israel from some of their enemies like Assyria and Babylon. And so it could be seen as a symbol of protection. But not only for the people in the ancient Near Eastern world, not only for the Israelites, but also even in the world in which John was living, the Euphrates River had some importance in the world of politics and military. Because the Euphrates River separated Rome from one of their most pressing enemies in Parthia. And so it was a a symbol of protection and division and almost keeping military orders under control. But here we see a picture of the boundaries of safety being removed. These angels that are resting over the Euphrates River, this is a symbolic picture of God just letting loose everything that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And the result is this picture of a large, insanely horrifying-looking army. And what we can see here is a picture of human violence and destruction let loose. We looked a couple weeks ago at the counterfeit kingdoms of power and politics and finance and how they're constantly vying for our attention and trying to pull us away from following after Christ. And here we see a picture of that finally being able to have unfettered rule and reign in the midst of God's world. And the outcome is devastating. says, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke of their mouths. We see this horrific picture of devastation in what appears to be human hands. And so these judgments that are being proclaimed here are swift and harsh and heavy and total in their nature. But then there's something that still remains here. Verse 20 starts off by saying the rest of mankind. And so it's not this picture of final and complete judgment. And so maybe we can look at this and say, well, clearly this is going to be a big attention getting thing that God is going to do as one last rallying cry saying, don't you see who I am? Don't you see what sin is doing? Don't you want to turn away from that and follow after me? And there'll be some sort of big revival that moves on the other side of this. But that's not what happens. In fact that's rarely what happens when we see it all throughout scripture on a smaller scale. Think about the stories in the book of Judges. The judges, that period of life in the in the history of Israel is is insane. They went through seven cycles of following after other gods, chasing after other kingdoms, falling into periods of sin, and God had to rescue them out of their own sin. That happens seven times through the book of Judges. And so you would think by the end of that, they would say, you know what? We should probably stop that. We should probably serve and honor God. But the book of Judges ends with a sentence saying, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The story with Noah. Noah gets to see God's judgment on full display and he's spared from it. And the first thing he does when he comes off of the boat is he worships and honors God. And the second thing he does is get blackout drunk and expose himself and fall in to sin. Immediately on the other side of judgment, it's a return to sin. Jesus told a parable in which a man named Lazarus was a beggar at a table of a rich man And they both died. And Lazarus goes to be with God and the rich man goes to hell. And he cries out in torment and anger, first asking for some relief for himself, but then when that's not coming, he calls out to God again saying, just let me go tell my family. If they just knew, if they just understood what this looked like, then surely they would change their ways too and they would follow God too. But the harsh spiritual moral of that story that Jesus tells, he says that even if they were to see someone come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And that's what we see here on the other side of this proclamation of God's judgment. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of their works works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. And listen to what he says there, which cannot see or hear or walk. John says they see this full picture of God's power on unlimited display. And even on the other side of that, they look at him and they say, you know what? I would rather follow these other kingdoms and these other gods that have no power at all. And we see in this passage is a hard reminder that one day there will be a time when God's patience with human rebellion and sin runs out. We looked at the passage that Peter gave us last week where he says that God is not slow, but God is patient because he desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we see that over and over and over again, that God is the God of steadfast love, that he's a God of mercy, and his mercies are new every morning, that he is a God of grace upon grace upon grace, that he is a God of first chances, second chances, third chances, that he forgives over and over and over again. And that's why we're called to do the same, because that's how often God forgives us and how patient God is with his judgment. But this is a reminder that one day that patience will run out. And God will bring judgment and there won't be any more time. And so this is, yes, it's an alarm of judgment. Yes, it's a proclamation of what God is going to do, but it's also a wake up call for us to do what we should be doing, to take the work of the church seriously. As we live in this time where God is abundantly patient, where God is rich in love and mercy and graciousness and kindness, then we have a responsibility to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. To say we have been saved and made whole by God and live in a way that reflects that, to live in a manner worthy of our calling, but also to go out and to do the work that the church is called to do. To love our neighbors as ourselves to care for those who are in need, to care for the widows and orphans, to proclaim the gospel at every opportunity we have to make a declaration that we serve a God who is steadfast in his love and patient with us and forgiving and kind and merciful because the Bible tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so we should be modeling the kindness of God everywhere that we go and praying that he would use our lives, our kindness and our gospel hope to draw people to salvation salvation and seal them for eternity while there's time. And so if this is the effects of sin, then we should avoid that. If this is the promise of judgment, then we should be actively going out into the world and loving and caring for those who need the grace and mercy of God, speaking the gospel, living the gospel, putting the gospel on our, as we're we're talking about being sealed and the Bible says that we're sealed on our hands, our heart and our minds, thinking and feeling and acting in a way that glorifies God, that proclaims the gospel and that heals the broken and loves those in need. And so as we've been looking at the way the church exists in this in-between time, we've looked at our hope. We've looked at the fact that we'll, and we'll have to endure difficulty and hardship and tribulation, but also we're not just here for a passing minute. And sometimes one of the most harmful things that comes out of the way that people interpret the book of Revelation is this idea that one day God is just gonna snatch us away and leave everything else behind. So why do we care about what's going on right now? But what we see in the book of Revelation is that God is working to bring restoration, not only to his people, but to the whole of creation. And it's our work to begin that work as we wait for him to finish it. And that comes not just in caring for people naturally and physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And so if this is the picture of God's judgment, then we, as we look for this kind of uncreation, need to be people of creation. Constantly going out, caring for people, caring for this world, but also being lights in spiritual darkness. And standing for Christ in all things, but also loving with an unconditional love, serving without growing tired and enduring whatever comes, knowing that our lives don't belong to us, but they belong first and foremost to God and second to his kingdom and third to those who we are trying to reach and love for the sake of the gospel. And so whether it's individually or as a church or as the church with a capital C all around the world, it is our job and this in-between to sound our trumpets of God's grace, mercy, and kindness. Until the day when he comes, not just in judgment, but as we're gonna see in just a few weeks, also with restoration and salvation on its wings. But let's just pray now. And as I pray, I'm gonna ask you to pray along with me that we would be able to process the heaviness of this passage because it's, it's difficult but also that we would take seriously the effects of sin, the healing power of the gospel, and the finality of time that we have to do the work of the church. Father God. It's just so hard to feel confident reading and and preaching a passage like that Because God, there's just so much that we can't fully understand or comprehend. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us to the best that we need to know, what we need to understand about these these echoes of coming judgment. But God, I do pray that, that you use it to awaken something inside of us. If there's anyone here who's never trusted in you for salvation, who's never gone through baptism, God, I pray that you don't let them leave here, not simply because of the warnings of your judgment, but God, also because of the promise of your kindness. That your judgment is quick, but your your patience and your love is steadfast and enduring you are so kind and loving and that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, that there is grace at the cross through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so if anyone's here and has never put their faith in you, God, I pray that you just save them with your kindness this morning. And they wouldn't leave here without talking with me about what it means to follow after Christ in salvation, to have a hope that never passes away, and what it means to be baptized. God, for the followers of Christ in this room, I pray that you help us to see the urgency of our mission. That you've called us to be light in a world of darkness. That you've called us to endure in a time of tribulation. But God, that you've also called us to be your hands and feet. To be representatives of your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. And so God, forgive us for the times when we don't reflect that. God, correct us in the times when our lives don't image that give us the strength to love our neighbors as ourselves, not simply in the things that we do, but in the words that we speak, not simply in a natural way, meeting physical needs, God, as you call us and lead us to do that, but God also in a spiritual way, loving people enough to share the gospel, loving people enough to proclaim Christ crucified, buried and risen and the hope that comes in knowing him. Father, help us to be a city on a hill, lighting the darkness until the day when you come again. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.